Hello everyone, this is Shelby and welcome to my podcast, An Engineer's Journey. I'm super excited for this interview today, so definitely, definitely stick around. Welcome and welcome back everyone to this episode in season two of An Engineer's Journey. I'm so excited that you've decided to join me. Um, It's been so much fun recording this podcast and putting out these episodes for y'all and I really hope they've been helpful or at least enjoyable. As many of you may already know, every month I release two episodes. One that's a solo episode sharing advice or experiences that I've had. And then the other episode is an interview episode where I bring someone on as a guest who has been influential in my engineer's journey. And I have them share about their life story, their engineer's journey and advice with you all. And my hope with this is that I can share with you all some of the resources that have helped me along my journey. Now, before we begin, I'm going to ask that you follow me on social media. So I'm at TikTok at Shelby underscore J. I'm on Instagram at An Engineer's Journey. And I'm on Twitter at Shelby Johnson. So you can follow me on all three where I also share things about my journey through the PhD um, that I'm working on currently, as well as any other experiences in advertising for my podcast. And while you're here on Spotify or Apple Music or wherever you're listening, be sure to give me a follow as well as rate my podcast and let me know how I'm doing. So thanks so much in advance for all of your support. I really, really do appreciate it. But without further ado, let's go ahead and welcome our guest who I'm so excited to welcome. I met her because she is the chair of the department I'm currently doing my PhD in and she is so accomplished. I'm so excited for you to learn all about her. Today, our guest is Dr. Paula Hammond. Dr. Paula Hammond is the head of the chemical engineering department at MIT. She is also an institute professor at MIT, the highest professorship at the school, and a David H. Koch professor. She attended MIT for her bachelor's and PhD in chemical engineering and attended Georgia Tech for her master's degree. She heads the Hammond Lab, which researches nanoscale materials for drug delivery. Please welcome Dr. Hammond to the podcast. Hi, Dr. Hammond. Thank you so much for agreeing to join me on the podcast. Thanks, Shelby. I'm really interested in having this conversation. Great. So we'll start off early, early in life. Um, What led you to pursue chemical engineering and what were your long-term goals? When I was younger, I really wanted to be a writer, and it wasn't until I got into high school when I had a chemistry lab that actually had an actual lab in it, and I was able to mix chemicals together and see things change, make uh, heat or light get produced from mixing chemicals. But I got really excited about chemistry. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I was at an all-girls high school, um, and so my teacher was my first sort of uh, women uh, woman who was a science teacher, she was a chemistry teacher, and her name was Mrs. Her, and she actually said, you should think about chemical engineering because you're good in math and, and physics, mm. and you really like chemistry. So at that point, I decided to investigate it, uh, worked with my parents to find out what that was about, and got excited about it. And so from junior year of high school on, I went into chemical engineering. Wow. That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And 
And what were your long-term goals at the time? Did you know what a chemical engineer did on a day-to-day basis, or was it kind of like, I'll start in college and we'll go from there? (laughs) It was a little both. Mm -hmm. I I was really interested in wanting to make things at Mm -hmm. that time. And as I got more into chemical engineering, the first couple of years, I remember thinking, what happened to the chemistry Mm -hmm. and the molecules? (laughs) Where are my molecules? Yeah. Uh, Because everything was very abstract Mm -hmm. and continuum and there's stuff flowing, but it doesn't have any molecular characteristic. Yeah. Uh, but then I began to understand why knowing those things and understanding why the way something flows or the way heat gets transferred or, or the way a reaction is controlled can actually help you with the kinds of things that excite me. Hmm. But what really got me excited and interested was the idea that in polymers, hmm. and I actually took a polymer science class as an elective, you can combine these concepts. You can actually take chemical sized structures, Mm -hmm. units, and put them together. And depending on how you have placed them, they have an ability to move or flex or remain rigid. Mm -hmm. They have different melting points. They have different ways in which they interact with each other. Mm -hmm. And that leads to these incredibly different properties. So that got me excited. And from my perspective, that was when I began to think about chemical engineering, not just as a field, that would be interesting and exciting, but as a way to build something, to be able to create something that you know you can impart that didn't exist before. Yeah, so cool, thank you. <laughs> um, so tell me a little bit more about your college experience. What degrees do you hold and what led you to pursue them in that order? Excellent, so I have a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering, um, a master's degree in chemical engineering, and between those two degrees, I worked for a couple of years as a process engineer. Uh, I worked as a research engineer while I was at Georgia Tech and got Mm -hmm. my master's. Then I came back to MIT and got my PhD in chemical engineering. Uh, My chemical engineering PhD was as a part of the program for polymer science and soft matter, which was then called polymer science and technology. So I actually had a very multidisciplinary PhD in which I was able to take classes from four or five different departments all of which related to polymer science, and take the chemical engineering core classes as my minor. It was sort of inverted things. And so when you decided to come back for your PhD, did you realize by then that you would pursue academia? Or was it more just from your research roles, you knew that was something you wanted to do? Well, by the time I got back to MIT, I knew I wanted to go into academia. Mm-hmm. And that, that was something I realized after I worked. Um, after my bachelor's degree, I worked for two years at Motorola. Mm-hmm. And I was a process engineer and was really, um, I felt very constrained about what I could do. Mm. And kept being told I needed a higher level degree to be able to create or build new things. Mm. Uh, So uh, I ended up moving to Georgia Tech. Uh, While my husband was getting his uh, MBA, Mm. I was actually getting my master's while at Georgia Tech. And as soon as I got back on campus, I thought this is what I love, Mm. being back on a campus, Mm working with other students, um, having this sort of open exchange of ideas, and knowing that if you can generate your own idea and get someone to fund it, Mm -hmm. that you can move on, that you can actually get that done, make that idea real. So it was that idea, it's it's kind of entrepreneurial, you get to uh, innovate around what your question is, Mm -hmm. and if other people are excited about that question, engage them. Uh, if you can get people to fund you, then you actually have a way to move forward. And so that got me really excited. 
Wow, nice. Um, okay, so another question. Were there ever moments throughout your career where you felt like you couldn't do it? And if so, how did you overcome these feelings? Yes, multiple. <laughs> <laughs> so when the first that I really remember is that in, in high school, I was always the A student. I mean, I, I, was, I was the A student for all of my elementary and high school life, right? And I, I left my little all-girls school and came to MIT as an undergraduate and immediately realized, okay, wow, so many people are so much smarter than me. This mm -hmm. is the way I was thinking at that time, um, that there's no way I'm going to survive. I thought I was, I was an admissions mistake, mm -hmm. you know? So uh, when I was experiencing MIT at that time and listening to people talk in the hallways about how they had AP physics and AP calculus. I came from a high school where calculus was not the norm, so I had something called pre-calculus. Mm -hmm. um, so I felt very underprepared. And when I took those first classes in real calculus at MIT, as a freshman, I, was, I felt overwhelmed. Mm. Um, but uh, what I did at that point was uh, talk to my friends, uh, you know, to reaffirm that okay, there are other people here who have different <laughs> backgrounds, yeah. and and everyone is going to to work on this, and we'll we'll work on this together. Mm. I learned from them. I, I I had no issues with asking questions, um, engaging tutors, mm. asking for help, and uh, basically um, spending long hours working my way through things and spending more time on things than I had ever before. Uh, but in the end, I began to see the light. You know, you get that point to that point where you go, oh, okay, this is doable. This is, this is reasonable. I can actually make this work. And, and that was what helped me uh, with undergrad. But I definitely had that moment in undergrad. <laughs> and you know, those moments come back again at different points in life. Um, and it's very, it's a very similar story in each case. Mm -hmm. um, in grad school, because I have worked, I think I came back to grad school with a very different perspective. Instead of thinking I don't belong here, I had lived a life in industry where I'd seen people <laughs> fake it so much <laughs> that you can tell <laughs> that uh, that you know that they had uh, that that let's just say that. Um, that if you have worked hard on your degree and achieved that level of knowledge uh, where you can operate, mm. then you should know that you are capable. Mm. Um, and I, I worked alongside people who had huge amounts of confidence with about 20% of the same <laughs> preparation. And I'm thinking, okay, I can do this. I can do this, exactly. <laughs> so when I came back to grad school, I came back with this perspective of, you know, I'm, I didn't feel as intimidated. Mm. And I decided I was just going to engage my environment as much as I could. Mm -hmm. um, and so with qualifying exams, which, you know, that was intimidating, <laughs> especially being having been away for mm -hmm. uh, some time mm -hmm. from full-time schoolwork, uh, I, I just sort of took a deep dive in again and, and trained myself again until I was back to where I needed to be. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, I had learned that those voices in your head are, are fake. Mm -hmm. You still hear them, but you know they're fake. Yeah. 
Yeah, I feel like that the older I get, the more I realize that's the hardest part. It's changing the mindset to realize you're supposed to be here. Like, you can do it. If you don't have that, it can be a really difficult time, you know? So. Absolutely. That is absolutely right. And, and it's that ability to sort of have that conversa- conversation with yourself. Mm. You know, look, you know. Yeah. You know you're all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't listen to those voices. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you. Um, okay, cool. So let's make a little bit of a pivot. Um, tell me about your current research. What does your lab do? So my lab uses polymers to uh, essentially encapsulate and deliver drugs to specific parts of the body. And we do this a number of different ways. Um, One area that we work in is in the generation of extremely thin films using alternating charge, taking a positively charged material and absorbing a negatively charged material on top of that. And then a positively charged material, you make these mini layers. And in our work, um, some of those charged materials are degradable polymers and others are actually therapeutics, proteins, siRNA, uh, mRNA, that can help to uh, accelerate cell growth and enable things like wound healing. So we have a wound healing project for diabetic wounds and chronic wounds. Um, we have a pro- we've had projects with bone regeneration, which we try to rebuild bone around an implant. Mm. So that's one area. The other area, and the reason why I'm in this building, uh, the Koch Institute, is that we take the same sorts of concepts, uh, but we will use a nanoparticle, an extremely small particle, we will encapsulate a drug within that, and then we will wrap those charged materials around that particle. And some of those charged materials can be siRNA, which can be used to reprogram a tumor cell so that it is more sensitive or receptive to the drug inside the particle. Um, in other cases, we use this kind of um, you know, nanomaterial system with specific chemistries that we wrap around it, sometimes a naturally occurring polymer like a polysaccharide that has a high binding affinity for one kind of cell type over another. Mm-hmm. So if we can have essentially a nanoparticle, so I I like to refer to these as sticky nanoparticles, (laughs) and we have designed nanoparticles that are particularly sticky to ovarian cancer cells. Mm. And in that work, we found that depending on what we wrap around the nanoparticle, that nanoparticle might stick to the outside of of an ovarian cancer cell, or it might get taken up into the interior of that ovarian cancer cell. In that second case, we can incorporate something like um, a a DNA-damaging drug that will kill the ovarian cancer cell, Mm -hmm. or siRNA that will silence these really critical pathways that only the tumor cell relies on, Mm -hmm. and that causes that tumor cell to die. We've also done uh, work in which we've done combinations of these Mm -hmm. kinds of therapies, which would be really toxic if they were delivered straight uh, through the bloodstream, but mm. delivered in this nanoparticle, uh, can actually allow us to deliver really potent drugs to ovarian cancer. Mm. And then the second version, when the nanoparticle just sticks to the outside of the cancer cell, mm-hmm. uh, we've been delivering drugs which activate the immune system. Mm. And by delivering them near the cancer cell, we actually bring immune cells close to the cancer cells mm. and get them activated against those tumors. And with that work, we're really hoping, um, we have this wonderful collaboration that just got started um, through a program called Breakthrough Cancer Mm -hmm. that links MIT with several other cancer centers and a huge amount of patient data 
we're hoping that we can understand how we can design these nanoparticles to get the immune system to address ovarian cancer, which is particularly important because yeah. ovarian cancer, we haven't had one of those breakthrough mm -hmm. cures for. In fact, um, we've done so much better, even though all of these cancers are very difficult, mm -hmm. we've done so much better in finding and discovering with breast cancer, for example, mm -hmm. uh, some of the pathways that we can address. Mm -hmm. But we haven't understood as much about ovarian cancer. Mm -hmm. um, however, if we are able to make the immune system respond to it in a way that it can't right now, that may address some of those issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely amazing. <laughs> um, I'm sure there's probably so many people listening right now who have never heard of anything in this field. Where could they go if they want to learn more about your research? Excellent. So I have a website, and on that website you can learn a little bit more. Uh, but there's also, in terms of nanoparticle uh, chemistry and nanoparticles for medicine, uh, you can actually find through Google a number of other links. Uh, in our work, uh, there have been um, a few different uh, video productions that mm -hmm. have been made of our work as well. Mm -hmm. And I will have to provide those to you if that's possible yeah, afterward. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, excellent. So that they give um, sort of a, a, a more of a narrative mm -hmm. idea of our work. Cool. And listeners, I'll include those in the podcast notes, so go ahead and find it there. So, you wear a lot of hats currently, chair of the MIT Chemical Engineering Department, head of the Hammond Lab, member of the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, a mother. What has it been like wearing so many hats, and how do you find the time to balance it all? This is something I think we all struggle with, and I have always had something of this issue because even as a student, I joined five or six different organizations while I was trying to study, and I did learn a little bit about how to think about organizing my time. Mm -hmm. However, when I had a baby in the middle of grad school, mm -hmm. I learned a great deal more about time management. Wow. Uh, and I think uh, part of it is uh, that I had worked a little bit in mm -hmm. uh, those previous years. Um, so I had two years of work experience, which helped me to understand how to compress a lot into a, mm -hmm. an eight to five day. Mm -hmm. But after the birth of my child, um, <laughs> I had to learn how to compress a whole lot more mm. into those hours. And part of what I got from that was thinking about my day ahead of time. Mm. So I do have these lists that I make, I do plan <laughs> out my day, and I do think about when I can take a break and do something else that I need to do. Mm. Um, and, however, there's also the ability to try and think about what's important to you and prioritize the things in your life. Mm -hmm. For me, that's something that is constantly going on. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things I think is really important is knowing what's important to you personally mm -hmm. and integrating that into how you arrange those life lists mm -hmm. so that you are not chasing things that aren't going to give you some sort of joy or meaning later on. Mm -hmm. This is really important about the life balance mm -hmm. because having a family meant for me that I absolutely needed certain hours of my day free. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, that became a part of my habit, a part of the way I shaped my life. Mm -hmm. So there are times when I don't take appointments. There are times when uh, I am definitely away from work. Mm -hmm. And I learned how to take those vacations where you, your laptop sits in the corner for a week mm -hmm. and you don't pick it up. Yeah. 
And there's huge value in that, as well as uh, being able to uh, think about um, how to organize your life. You have to think about how to protect yourself from the things that invade your life. Hmm. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm sure that'll be helpful to a lot of people. <laughs> okay, hopefully. Okay, another question. What are your thoughts on the future of chemical engineering and its importance in our society? I've heard before chemical engineering is outdated, even though I decided to join the major, I don't think it is, but what are your thoughts on that? I think chemical engineering is key to our future and there are several reasons for that. Uh, sustainability and climate change are, are two of those. Uh, chemical engineers actually know how to manage uh, modify and optimize processes that we use to make things mm. so that we actually conserve water, conserve energy. Uh, we can design sustainable processes uh, that are safe. Mm. We can also design material systems that are degradable. Chemical engineers are going to be key in the sort of sustainability revolution mm. that we see going on. I think that it's chemical engineers who will actually be able to deconstruct the old way of doing things mm and build a new way of doing things in which we have the food and the materials and the things that we need in a way that is safe, that protects the environment, and that is low cost. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think this is going to be key in agriculture. Mm -hmm. Chemical engineers are actually going to play a role, I think, in agri-engineering and in uh, everything from uh, sustainable plant-based meats. Mm -hmm. In fact, I spoke to one of the founders of one of these big companies who's a chemist looking for chemical engineers wow. uh, to actually help with those kinds of um, areas. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one area. I think that biomedical health, mm -hmm. the area that I work in, is an area that relies deeply on chemical engineers for a number of reasons. We understand and think about systems, mm -hmm. and we think of the body as a system. Um, we can understand how we can optimize the way in which drugs get to our body, how they act within our body, and how to make better systems that are going to be safer for patients. And I think that's going to be key. We also know how to manage the manufacturing and advancement of large-scale medicines like the manufacture of vaccines. Chemical engineers, again, are going to be key in that area. And ultimately, I think that there's going to be a huge uh, revolution in energy as well. And chemical engineers, of course, are at the core of the energy revolution. Um, they have to understand everything from catalysis, how to make important chemical conversions, uh, to the importance of how we can find new ways of using the resources we have now to generate energy. Yeah, thanks so much. So yeah, a reminder to everyone that really explore the engineering fields you're interested in because it's probably so much broader and there's probably so much more to do with it than you even could imagine. Absolutely. Okay, another question. Have you had any mentors over the years? And if so, how did you establish that relationship? Yes, definitely. In fact, mentors have been really important to me. Maybe an early example was that high school teacher who introduced me to chemical engineering. Mm -hmm. Um, but when I was an undergraduate, I uh, got really excited about the field of polymer science. And there were two faculty members at the time who noticed my enthusiasm and my excitement around that field and uh, whom I spoke to. Later on, when I applied back to MIT, those two faculty members uh, became my teachers and instructors and, and were definitely mentors to me. 
more importantly, was while I was a graduate student, I, I actually selected my thesis committee in a somewhat strategic fashion. Mm. I had a wonderful thesis advisor who um, had a, a, a huge excitement for the field and was uh, doing extremely well, was pre-tenure mm -hmm. and on his way to tenure, um, and had a great sense of sort of work-life balance. Mm -hmm. And I thought I could learn a lot from him. Mm -hmm. But I chose two other committee members, one of whom was uh, very uh, established in his field, uh, very strategic, understood where you needed to be and when uh, to get something done, uh, excellent at raising funds and was the director of our polymer program. Mm. So he was another member of, of my committee. And the third was um, a faculty member who was more senior and just very excited about the work I was doing mm. and incredibly benevolent. So between the three of them, I had sort of a, a core model for how I wanted to uh, sort of model my life. Mm. I had someone who was the strategizer <laughs> and <laughs> told me, why are you going to that conference? You need to be visible at this one. <laughs> and I had the one who was the cheerleader. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, definitely, you need to listen to this student. She is amazing. Go to her <laughs> poster, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And actually, those were my letter writers for mm -hmm. my academic jobs, as wow. it turns out. Yeah, very cool. Okay, good to know. So be strategic about who you choose for your <laughs> thesis committee. <laughs> exactly, and having multiple mentors can be really helpful. Mm -hmm. You need each of those kinds of voices, mm -hmm. and you can consult those voices at times uh, when you need that particular angle. Perfect, that makes sense. Cool. Um, another question, what has it been like being an extremely successful black woman in a not-so-diverse field? Well, that's really kind of you. <laughs> It has always been, you know, a journey to be uh, many times the only black woman in a field. And for me, it's, it's something that um, you ha I have had an awareness of, but it has never been something that, has, um, that I feel I've allowed to hinder mm -hmm. what I do. In fact, we all know that when we're really excited about something and we're doing our science, we're just in the science yeah. and we're doing our thing and we're moving um, in our space the way we need to. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's when I, uh, I, I'm most aware is when I am uh, engaged in the science. Mm -hmm. However, when you go to a conference mm -hmm. and you say, you know, notice that someone is differentially uh, engaging others and not you. Mm -hmm. Or you notice when someone says something to you which has an implication to it mm. or an assumption mm. of, of who you are and what you can do, then there's that reminder, mm. right? And I've always found it more effective for me to sort of, you know, when I can and when, it, when it's reasonable, just to sort of readjust the frame for them. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I will make a statement or say something to redirect mm. and re-engage and uh, if nothing else, I feel better about it. Mm -hmm. if, it if it is a correction or, a, um, or simply uh, an announcement that I am here, mm -hmm. <laughs> I do try to do that. Um, I have found that one of the most important things for me has been having colleagues. Mm -hmm. and, and for that reason, there are women, uh, in fact, if you, go, if you go to an AICHE meeting, um, at a certain time of day, usually late at night, 
there are a group of us all in one hotel suite Aww. huddling together because we all know each other wow exactly uh, and, and it's sort of the the black women uh, faculty in chemical engineering and and so we have all sort of stayed connected we keep in touch with each other and follow each other's careers and that has been um, one of the huge strengths I think in in uh, for me in everything that I've done yeah. is knowing that that support is there. And when we win something, we, we have an email list mm. that goes out and we <laughs> shout to each other, wow. oh yeah. <laughs> that is so beautiful, I bet that's so helpful. <laughs> it is incredibly helpful. Mm. It is important when you are journeying mm. in a field where you are not, uh, when you are not uh, going to be represented mm. or reflected frequently as you look around uh, to A, recognize that you are important, your perspective is not going to be present unless you're present. Mm. Um, and uh, to not back down, but to sort of stay the course and, uh, you know, in my mind, gently redirect people <laughs> when they have the wrong idea. Mm -hmm. But you also need to have that strong core. And to me, having those connections, that was my strong core. Cause yeah. You know, when we get together and talk, we talk about how yeah. we face those things. Mm -hmm. And uh, we laugh about it, we talk about our strategies, and we know that we are continuing to move forward and move onward. And that's the thing that is really, you know, hugely important for me. Yeah, wow, that's very encouraging. Thank you for that. Um, okay, we're almost done. Just a couple more questions, actually. Uh, one more of a fun question. <laughs> You're the first woman and person of color to lead MIT's chemical engineering department. What was it like meeting former President Barack Obama, who was also a first, the first black <laughs> president of the US? <laughs> it was amazing. Mm. I, I, that is a moment that I will never forget. Mm. Uh, and to me, it meant a huge amount because uh, here was someone that I felt had gone through his own barriers mm. and uh, faced his own doubters and moved forward and stood uh, for us. Mm -hmm. And I felt like uh, it was it was incredibly affirming mm -hmm. to talk about my science mm -hmm. with this man who had mm -hmm. who had done all of those things. Um, so for me, it was the most amazing thing. And and uh, you know, I saw it. Yeah, I have a picture <laughs> that reminds me of that mm -hmm. all the time. Um, I found that he was you know incredibly intelligent inquisitive, mm. curious, and uh, great sense of humor. And I think for me, it was just important to be able to have that sort of intelligent exchange mm. um, with someone who uh, has represented us and led our country. Mm. I, I, it's just amazing to me. Yeah. My grandma, my dad's mom, like her biggest dream in the world, I think, is to meet Obama. <laughs> so I have to share this episode with her so she can live through you. I know, it is something I will never forget. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> cool. <laughs> um, okay, so almost done, as I said, two more questions. Um, what's the next big or small thing that you would like to accomplish? Ah, I would love to um, make progress in ovarian cancer. Mm. And with this uh, new set of uh, of funding that we have, combined with some really exciting allies that I have. We're working with uh, Angie Belcher mm. and Sangeeta Bhatia's lab. Um, we also have collaborations with Stephanie Sprainer and Daryl Irvin. So collaborations here and with my colleagues at the hospitals. Mm. I think that we 
are going to be able to make some progress and make a difference. Mm -hmm. So for me, I would love to see that difference happen because um, it's the fifth leading cause of death, uh, mm -hmm. cancer death for women. Mm -hmm. And it's also uh, uh, essentially had a survival rate that has not improved wow. for 30 years. Wow. So um, roughly about 70% of, uh, of women who get ovarian cancer will respond to the first round of treatment. Mm. But of that group, about 85% will have some kind of recurrence. Mm. Um, so it's that recurrence that we're actually studying mm -hmm. in this effort. So that's one of the, that's one of the big things mm -hmm. uh, that I'm really excited about. I think in terms of other things, I, I love the journey that I'm on. Mm. And I, I'm interested in so many things. I, I'm excited about my role in PCAST. Mm. I've always been very interested in science policy mm. and how the government, how our government can help us make science something that benefits the broader world, everyone. And uh, there, there's opportunities to have impact on equity and access, you know, and to increase our representation in mm. STEM as well. Mm -hmm. So. All of those things are also exciting to me. Yeah, very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and lastly, my podcast is called An Engineer's Journey, so I like to end just asking my guests, what advice would you give to others on their engineer's journey? Remember that your perspective is important. Hmm. Remember that you are bringing something to the table. We have problems that we need to work on, but you may be the only person who sees that problem. Hmm. You may be the only person who understands the link between two different areas or two different sets of ideas. Your role in science is incredibly important, so stay the course and speak up because we need to hear you. Thank you so much, Dr. Hammond. Yes, absolutely, Shelby. <laughs>